This isn't right. This isn't right. You don't do this. You don't keep a man waiting. I know, I know. The only time you do is when? When you want to say something. I know. When you want to say fuck you. Uh, It's the only time. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth the Brains Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time mobster, Andrew the Boss Raphael. (laughs) (laughs) And for this week's episode, well, you didn't hear anything from us, as we'll be spending time with Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. But can Scorsese and his team of special effects wizards convince us that De Niro can relive his youth? Or is the real crime the fact that $200 million was spent to make him look like a De Niro waxwork dummy after a blaze at Madame Tussauds? Find out after the trailer. Frank Sheeran. Am I saying that right? Yeah, you said it right. Under the contract, management can only fire a driver on very specific charges. So, you have a show up late. No. Do you have any moving violations? No. Do you drink on the job? No. You ever hit anybody? On a job? Yeah. I don't think so. All right, then. We don't have nothing to worry about. With the help of cutting-edge special effects, Robert De Niro is transported to his youth as the world's oldest 30-year-old in <laughs> The Irishman. A film about death that is so long that it is statistically likely that some people watching it have died before the credits have rolled. <laughs> De Niro plays Frank Sheeran, the titular Irishman with ties to the Mafia, who most others call The Kid. That is despite the fact that he looks like he sleeps with his teeth in a glass on his bedside table. <laughs> with the help of Pesci's Russell Buffalino, Frank is tasked with bodyguard duties for hide-and-seek champion Jimmy Hoffa, played with gusto by Al Pacino. What follows is a homosexually charged love triangle between these three dirty old men in what can only be described as the gayest film of Pacino's career. And he sucked dick in cruising. (laughs) So, so Andy, the Irishman, the Irishman. Yes, very Irish. Very little Irishman in this film, I would say. (laughs) So this is a film I've actually wanted to cover on the podcast. I would say for some time, the film only came out in 2019, but... I've wanted to do an Irishman episode ever since the film was released. You said that makes you sound like I just wanted to do an episode featuring somebody Irish for the longest time. Anyone, any Irishman will do. <laughs> but yeah, I've been wanting to do this for some time actually. One, it being a Martin Scorsese film, and two, it also being something of a Martin Scorsese experiment as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my history with this film is I was fortunate enough to see it at the cinema as well. Mm. So I have that experience of seeing on a big screen yeah which is probably where i would say it has worked best for me yeah but it's also always been one of those flawed masterpieces something that has certain elements that we will get into that you have to look past Yeah. yeah and how much you're willing to forgive in regards to the practicalities of you know the filmmaking will determine whether or not you're able to connect with this film i think yeah i wouldn't begrudge anyone that can't find their way to quite get past the issues and not see the film that is here like the what because i i do genuinely think that this is a probably like one of the 
strongest flawed masterpieces I've seen. Yeah, yeah. But what's your experience with The Irishman? Did you enjoy watching it on your phone? <laughs> As Martin Scorsese yeah. intended. Yeah, I watched it on my watch. Yeah. <laughs> I saw it on my Game Boy Color. I printed it off frame by frame on my Game Boy printer and then made a little flip book. Just as Martin Scorsese intended. Yeah, it's 50,000 pages long. (laughs) (laughs) It's been 84 years. (laughs) Printer's still going. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, this is the second time I've seen it. I don't even think I even saw it when it first came out, you know. I think it was. I don't think you did. No, I I think I was at you to watch it. And um, I, I think I may have accidentally pushed you further away from it yeah. you know when someone gets at you it's like you've yeah. got to see this you've got to see it you've got to see it and it just makes you go I, I, I can't be bothered nah not, go, not gonna bother <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i was really excited for the film when it was actually being made yeah as soon as i saw some of the de-aging footage in clips it was like oh <laughs> and then i think i left it about a year i think yeah i think i watched it at some point during lockdown i kind of thought it was okay but had a strong last hour but then i watched it again a couple of days ago incidentally i watched it in two parts again because um it's so long it's very difficult to uh, schedule watching the whole thing yeah especially around family life but ended up watching the first two and a quarter hours in one go and then the last one and a quarter hours last night yeah yeah it played a lot better for me although i did have some thoughts as to why that first say two hours is a little bit compromised and it's not even to do with the de-aging as a whole i think there is some fault with the de-aging but also i think there's some performance stuff that i think hampers the film which i don't think many people have maybe talked about or even want to talk about because it's like it's kind of for me i I, i mentioned it to you the other night and it's probably a little bit controversial it is very controversial i'm I'm, I'm excited to break that one down with you yeah (laughs) but um (laughs) i i did have a lot better time with it the second time around and again with any any film like this it usually is the case and especially with something like this because it's not like the other martin scorsese gangster epics yeah it is a much more subtle yeah subdued some would say impenetrable yeah i get that yeah meditation on gang life Mm. and american history i kind of always get that with films that that delve into the darker side of american history yeah sometimes puts off the americans (laughs) i would say as well like in terms of tonally setting this film up for audience members for those of of our audience that have seen the sopranos this film has got a very last season of the sopranos feel to it and and that is a very controversial season of the sopranos as well for uh, sopranos fans it has a feel that that has especially in terms of this sense of winding down yeah and it is a much different film than scorsese has made despite the fact that a lot of publications marketed it in a way as to say, like, hey, it's Goodfellas, it's Casino again, it's the old gang is back together. You know, they're going to do another one of these films. Yeah. And it's really not that kind of film. So there is no. an adjustment period that has to take place, I think, when you're watching this, if you're coming into it with the wrong mindset. Yeah. And it can take half the film before you get to where the film's taking you, really. Yeah, I think that's the thing watching it a second time, knowing what it was, I could appreciate it on its own terms rather than any 
expectations I would have had going into it, given how it was marketed. You know, it was marketed as the gang's back together. I mean, this is despite the fact that, like, producer Erwin Winkler was very much, like, straight from the off as, uh, you know, this is a slower movie is what he kept yeah. referring to yeah. it as. But still, it was just that kind of allure of having De Niro, Pacino and Pesci back making a film together and then later on Harvey Keitel as well. And we were like, this sounds like it's going to be more of that and give it to me. <laughs> Even though I feel like he had purged that from a system anyway by doing The Wolf of Wall Street, which feels more akin to those films. And yeah, so, yeah. Despite being in a different world. It's not even necessarily a slower film. I think it's more how it's performed and presented that makes it appear that way. I wouldn't say it's a slog or anything. It's paced rather no, no. well. And there's a lot of stuff to get through anyway especially mm -hmm. when you get to the latter part of the film where it kind of goes beyond where most gangster films go. Yes. So you've always got that in mind because I think if you'd ended it in the traditional place, it probably would have been three hours anyway. And I do get the feeling that that is where a lot of... Because this is a film that has somewhat of a torturous development hell and there are a lot of things that happen in the making of this film at least in the pre-production like the changing of hands between studios financiers jumping on board and dropping out and that kind yeah, of thing and yeah. i think it's because people were jumping into this film expecting it to be one thing finding out it was another thing entirely yeah and leaving the production because i imagine that they were expecting like as you say that three-hour film that ends at the logical point yeah yeah as you say this goes beyond that and there's another hour of uh, runtime to go before this film winds down yeah it's like i don't feel it ends it just kind of winds to a close yeah yeah. But let's move over to some context because, uh, as I've mentioned, there is a. Uh, it does have something of a development hell period because this film actually, like, first entered development in 2007, but its roots as a project that Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro were looking to make with each other goes way back to the 80s. Yeah. yeah. It was really just born out of a desire for Scorsese and De Niro to work together. The last film that they worked on together was 1995's Casino. Yeah. And that was the very like end of the period in which De Niro was Scorsese's golden boy, much like uh, it moved on to being Leonardo DiCaprio yeah, as yeah. well during the, the noughties. I like how that has come like full circle now, where we have Flowers of the Killer Moon yeah, coming out later on this year with both of them. Very much looking forward to that. <laughs> Cannot wait. <laughs> so it was born out of desire for those two to work together. And Scorsese in particular had an idea of doing an aging hitman story, but it just didn't gain traction at the time. I don't think De Niro was quite in, as interested in that. It was more along the lines of what was, what like other films that he was making and that type of thing as well. Yeah. And yeah, for a while it just fell to the wayside. Then in 2007, it was uh, De Niro that actually brought the book, I Heard You Paint Houses, uh, the story of mafia hitman Frank Sheehan. And he brought that to Scorsese. And Scorsese says in an interview with uh, Peter Travis that it was actually De Niro's manner in which he sold the film to Scorsese. It was how emotional he got when he was talking through the life of this um, individual. And it was that emotional response that made Scorsese say, yeah, we've got something here. There's, there's something there. But the book itself posed some incredible hurdles and... Some hurdles that audience members will say that this film didn't overcome, which is that it encompasses the life of a man. Yeah. And De Niro was at a certain age, even at that point, 
that it seemed unlikely that he would be able to play the character at a younger age. So certain avenues were explored, the idea of casting someone as a younger version, going down that road. All the while the script was in development as well as they were looking, they were thinking at one point it was just going to be like a, a couple of flashbacks to this point so that they could move on to the De Niro-based stuff. But it, it just didn't work in one way or another. And De Niro was very much tied to the idea of getting to grips with this character. You know, it was a really meaty role. And yeah, it wasn't until the mid-teens, I think around 2017, I mean, this was a film you were hearing about all the yeah, time as yeah. one of those great unmade films. It was in development hell for so long that I, I, I remember being excited for it way back as 2010. Yeah. And every time Martin Scorsese would make something else, I would be like, ah, it's just <laughs> not that one, is it? And yeah, so eventually in the mid-teens, they saw that some films were experimenting with this de-aging process this digital de-aging it was becoming more commonplace on a blockbuster scale and so they decided that they would join the experiment themselves and at first i believe they tested the process by recreating a scene from goodfellas and seeing if they could de-age robert de nero that was deemed a success and so they went from there but even between 2007 and that point, there were other things that were happening that were changing the landscape of the theatrical experience as well. Cinema itself was changing because streaming had become a giant during that period. And Scorsese was actually somewhat vocal in his, in his attitude and his negative response towards the idea of streaming towards the death of the theatrical experience at first. It was actually something of a coup for netflix to be able to get scorsese um with this project in a way mm -hmm. but it took like a lot of failures for them to get to that point as well so just to go over some things that happened during the making of the film so originally a mexican production company called fabrique de cinema offered a hundred million dollars to make the film through a deal that they had with paramount paramount were going to release it domestically and a further 50 million dollars was sought for the international distribution rights but unfortunately, due to ballooning costs, Paramount dropped the film and all financiers kind of fell to the wayside at that point. Everybody kind of abandoned ship. It was then shopped around and Netflix actually bought the rights to the film for $105 million. That's just the rights to the film, not the actual production budget. And then they provided Scorsese with a production budget of $125 million. Now that was not to remain that way. Some people in the business think that it actually doubled that and was around $250 million. So at first it ballooned to 140, and then it was rumored to have ballooned to above 150. And some publications, as I mentioned, say it's around $250 million. This film didn't have an exact release date or anything like that. They just allowed Scorsese to get on with it and make whatever film he was making. So that was like the, the production side of things. There were also issues along the lines of the casting as well. This, as I say, was touted as the De Niro Pacino project. What was that terrible film that they were in together that was like a millennium film in the early noughties? Like they were in, in Heat together and then they were in like some other film that starred like 50 Cent. Righteous Kill. Righteous Kill, that was it, yeah. I read an interview with them where they really regretted making that film because they felt it took the sheen off the idea of making The Irishman. But yeah, I think by the time that this film got made, it was less about the novelty of seeing Pacino and De Niro on screen together again. 
because as much as they are together on screen and as much as they are, um, you know, they clearly love working with each other. One of the things I would say is that whereas earlier in the career, like for example, with heat, mm. there's this real sense that they are competing with each other, even to the point in how they shot the famous cafe scene in heat in that it was famously done with body doubles and over the shoulder shots. So you barely get to see them on the same screen together <laughs> yeah. at once. With this one, there's kind of like, it's never treated as a novelty. There's an effortless nature to it. And they're never competing for space on the frame together. Or like, yeah. it, like it's clear that Al Pacino's given more of the showy role as well. So, you know, and Robert De Niro's Frank Sheeran. Uh, Sheeran. Sheeran? Sheeran? I'm convinced I'm going to call him Ed Sheeran at one point. <laughs> he is a much less showy, much quieter, much more contemplative role. So I think billing this as being, it's the Pacino and De Niro show, has really kind of um, like undersold what it actually is as well, or missold what it is. Yeah. When, if you think about one of the major scenes between De Niro and Pacino is when they're in the pyjamas in a, a bedroom. <laughs> yeah, it's got, it's got a very Bert and Ernie quality yeah. to it, you know. <laughs> Except Bert was a hitman that was eventually responsible for Ernie's death. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's a very dark episode of Sesame Street. That's the film I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> but Pacino was on board from a very early point as well. I mean, he wasn't doing any fucking other thing, was he? He was busy showing everyone his chocolate blend. Yeah. <laughs> And De Niro was very busy trying to sell his Rocky and Bullwinkle sequel. Ah, uh, Dirty Grandpa. D Dirty Grandpa. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we get to see De Niro and Zac Efron on screen together. I would like to see Martin Scorsese's Dirty Grandpa. <laughs> it would be very explicit. It would be, wouldn't it? It'd be far more explicit <laughs> than the film we got. Yeah, so one of the holdouts, though, was Joe Pesci. Yeah. Famously Joe Pesci, of course of it course, was. Yeah, He seemed to retire at a certain point. Everybody, he, he was one of those actors, you know, that people wanted to see more of. And he just kind of, at a certain point in his career, probably after making Gone Fishing, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the J.J. Abrams movie that everyone knows and loves. Probably after making that, he decided, yeah, no, I'm not going to do any more films now. <laughs> and it seemed like he was really going to stick to that. Yeah. And even this film, it was something that he didn't agree with for one reason or another. I think there's more of a monetary salary element to it than, yeah, the, yeah. than the trades are really letting on mm. to. Because these people like to negotiate in the press anyway. Yeah, yeah. But he decided that it, it wasn't worth coming out of retirement. Mm. But as Scorsese says in his interview with Pete Travis, that... De Niro has a way of just working you over. He said he just kept at Pesci, just kept selling the role, kept selling the role. And Pesci said, yeah. He was the essentially the last holdout. And then everything started to fall into place. Once Netflix bought the film, they agreed to just finance it to whatever price. And it went from there. I will say that Scorsese does say this about the Netflix experience, about why he eventually reconciled with himself the idea of having a film of this type play on Netflix. And it was that he did talk in this interview about the danger of the theatrical experience being lost by making this $200 million experimental film. And it did cause him some great trouble, but he looked at what was being made in theaters at the moment. And uh, this is going to be a very non-controversial statement for all the Marvel <laughs> fans out there. And he said that they were playing nothing but superhero movies and there was no place in the theaters left for a movie, an actual movie. 
I mean, he does admit in this interview as well that superhero films are movies to people, but not to him personally. It's not it's not a dig. It's just how he personally sees it. To him, the theme park rides now. He doesn't see what he, he wants anymore on the cinema. He's no longer being represented by the theatrical experience, in his opinion. He has loved superhero movies before as well, but now he said that th that is all that they were offering on the screen. But Netflix came in, they were offering to make the type of movie that he wanted to make, that he wanted to see more of, and it was a huge experiment as well. It was a wild experimental ride. He does make a point in the interview of saying, though, he still doesn't get the point of watching a movie on an iPhone. And he said, a big iPad, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say it's a great interview. It's, the, uh, as I say, Pete Travis, Martin Scorsese. It's about half an hour long, and it just goes through a lot of the key elements of this film as well. It's well worth watching. It's interesting now talking about this film in the context of where Marvel is at at the moment because they are going through something of a um transitional period <laughs> yes <laughs> to put it lightly where that formula that they had which was definitely becoming a theme park ride formula to the point where i mean i'm a very strong believer in that those films are aggressively three out of five across the board yes i haven't seen a single one maybe apart from the guardians of the galaxy films that go beyond that and I'm even referencing like stuff like Endgame and Infinity War than that. It's yes, yeah. They are aggressively mediocre films. Like I don't yeah. care what anyone else says. They're not doing anything particularly crazy or amazing. I remember I watched Spider Man No Way Home with you the other the other month. That was aggressively mediocre. Outside of a couple of elements like Willem Dafoe, Willem Dafoe and Andrew <laughs> Garfield and stuff like that. Yeah, you're talking about a 300 million dollar film that can't even do a, a kiss scene without using green screen, and yeah. uh, has its climax on some scaffolding. Yes, exactly. Yeah, in front of green screen. <laughs> in front of green screen. Yeah, that's not what I'm looking for in a cinematic experience it's just not no. and it's just dull <laughs> i mean the laziness of those set pieces you know they have all of the budget it's like they've got all of the budget none of the resources <laughs> oh yeah all of the budget none of the resources they have an crazy amount of creative talent at their fingertips and somewhere along the lines they settled on the idea that two of the biggest set pieces in the film one of which took place on scaffolding another one took place in a bland apartment block <laughs> and it's just like how lazy can you get you know mm. but yeah i mean even beyond the action of those films they're all of a certain type and you do have a few auteurs working within that system that still like their personalities shine through but by and large as we say it's a there's a template that's being stuck to here i will say as well the landscape has changed much since this film was released as yeah, well yeah. Uh, to the point in which these singular vision experience films these films that feel more like, in some way, that they feel like they're more based in reality. I know that you haven't seen it yet as well. Like films like Top Gun Ma Maverick becoming the number one of the post-COVID release schedule. And even films like, I know that you haven't seen this as well, and this may be controversial considering what I've just said about Marvel, and people will conflate that with it. <laughs> I loved Avatar 2 as well, and that's because, it, it, again, it feels intrinsically like a James Cameron film. It's it's like nothing else but a James Cameron film. That is different anyway. I mean, even if you don't like that kind of thing, you can appreciate that it is a 
labor of love for James Cameron. Yes. That is not a conveyor belt production. Yeah, you're, you're right. And the thing is as well, like even people who don't like it and they can compare it to, um, is it Wakanda Forever? That Wakanda had under- Forever, yeah. That had underwater scenes and that suffered heavily for being released around the same period as Avatar Way of Water because yeah. Avatar really showed up how lackluster that was in comparison and what you can yeah. actually achieve now with the technology if you give it a bit of time. And even The Little Mermaid is showing that as well in terms of all of the underwater stuff. Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, oh, God. I feel like we need to do a, a live-action remake part two. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> Cause, <laughs> but cause it's, got, it's gone even weirder with like all these weirdly dull and dark with the Peter Pan and Wendy and Little Mermaid and stuff. They feel like... I don't understand what's going on with the colour choices, and it's weird. <laughs> no, I particularly don't get David Lowry's Peter Pan and Wendy. No. Like, it's a David Lowry film. I've seen his films. They look good. The yeah. Green Knight is one of my favourite recent films, yeah. and it looks like it's been made by somebody else entirely. It looks like it's been made by committee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. On the swing of things, we've got, like, Martin Scorsese's Flowers of, Kill- of the Killer Moon. yeah breaking free from streaming to become a theatrical experience yeah and the deal that apple have just made for that film for ridley scott's napoleon as well to all come out at the end of the year feels like there's a swing happening back in the other direction now which is what i've been waiting for (laughs) and it feels like with what's going on with some of the more old school studios like the whole discovery thing feels a bit like what happened in the 60s with the end of the old studio system and the rise of a new one. And I feel like we're in the same period now where some of these very well-established studios, specifically Warner Brothers, and maybe Disney to a certain extent, especially Warner Brothers are starting to crumble because they they have a real identity crisis. Mm -hmm. I think they've lost their sheen. They are no longer a prestige studio. Uh, So many people that made films with them have now left, like Christopher Nolan. Uh, I imagine Denny Villeneuve will do once he's done June. And they are becoming a more of a bargain basement affair with, uh, with with all this stuff with, you know, Max and Harry Potter and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I still don't get the recent point of renaming hbo max max and getting rid of the prestige bit of the name (laughs) yeah it's it's now called max the home of hbo yeah i'm like that has very much the same vibes as that pennyworth tv show you know and once david zaslav took over warner brothers one of the things he did was changed its name to pennyworth the story of batman's butler or something (laughs) like that I was like, yes, that is that is definitely the people that change HBO Max to Max, the home of HBO, are definitely the same committee of people <laughs> that did the Pennyworth idea. Yeah, but like you've got all these kind of newer, well, kind of studios, but the next generation like Amazon and Apple, and mm-hmm. they've gone at this streaming model, but now they're going into, okay, let's do this, but on a theatrical setting, because we yes. feel that this is actually something that could work. Again, because all these other older studios are sort of so bogged down on all this other bullshit, we can actually fill that gap in the market. And there definitely is a gap in the market there for of course. this kind of thing. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But I do feel that we are in a quite significant transitional period because I feel like we've been in a transitional period for quite some time. But I feel like this is a, a, a game-changing situation, I think. Yeah, I have the feeling of the 
when we look through cinematic history, this has the same feeling as the death of the Western to me. And I feel like we're waiting for that that one film that comes and changes everything. As you mentioned before as well, like, you know, it's like got being back in the 60s. The, the streaming thing's actually gone from being the next big thing to actually being a bit of a blind alley. Even Netflix are talking about releasing films on the cinema and valuing the cinematic experience more, I think especially after the performance of Glass Onion. Yeah, I think they've gotten themselves into this cycle that their model necessitates that that move to cancel yeah. a successful series because it's not generating new subscribers. So they're having to go back to the drawing board now and going, oh, what went wrong? Because the yes, problem yeah. is all these streaming services base their model on Netflix, but they're basically basing their model on a startup company. Yeah. So that's where it's gone wrong for all these companies that they've not thought about it enough on their own terms in terms of how it would work for them being established companies, whereas Netflix wasn't an established, you know, it was a very small company mm. when it started off, you know, just posting DVDs through letterboxes and stuff. They only have to look as far as their competition when they first started, which was Blockbuster. Mm. And it was Blockbuster's rigidness, its stubbornness in terms of adapting to a changing market that resulted in its downfall. People say Netflix was Blockbuster's downfall. No, Blockbuster was Blockbuster's downfall. Yeah. They had the opportunity at one point to buy Netflix, and they did not value the streaming experience or see the future in it whatsoever, and that was why they died. Yeah. And Netflix find themselves in a very similar situation where they have to change their model or they can die, and they may have to bring in things like the theatrical experience and, you know, bring more value to that i hope that they are seeing that as well the thing that netflix have going for it is just simply that it was the first one to do what it did but with so many others out there that are adapting quicker it is facing a real danger of just fading to obscurity to mm. to falling down the ironically same path that blockbuster did everyone came to netflix because it was the only show in town and they had everything there mm -hmm. and then as soon as all these other companies started their own service they kind of started snatching back all these films and shows that were theirs that were on loan to netflix and then people went hang on this was our place to come was uh getting yeah. all its shows pulled and then the shows that they are making are being cancelled why should i bother and then the same thing happens all the way around so you get the audience going oh why should i bother signing up for a long time i can just pop in for a month and then cancel my subscription, which is not what they want. Of course not, yeah. Let's leave the context to one side for a moment, because oh, we do have to jump straight in here, and I'm going to ask you straight off, Andy, lay your cards on the table. What did you think of The Irishman? Well, like I said before, I'd say it's a, it's a four out of five movie for the first two hours, and a five out of five film for the last hour and a bit. Yeah. And part of the reason why it's four out of five in that first two hours is partially due to the de-aging, which it didn't play as bad for me this time, because again, I think I knew what I was expecting. But yeah, for me, to be honest, and this is the controversial thing, I think, because de-aging and performance-wise, in those first two hours, it comes back to one person, one character in that which is why that first two hours doesn't work as well as it should do and it, it was a painful realization for me because i love i love him as an actor you know he's done yeah. a couple of quite questionable films in the last 20 odd years but he is just one of the best like american actors we've ever had talking about adam sandler oh yeah uh, <laughs> but there was something not quite right 
with Robert De Niro's performance in this. He really claws it back in that last hour and a bit. But for the first two hours, it does feel a bit like a case of, is he actually miscast in that role? Because it's not as like he's doing a bad job. It's like, is he the best person to play that role? Mm. Even though it's a it's his baby and everything. It's like, I would think the old Robert De Niro of old would go, hey, I'm not actually the best person. Let's get somebody else. Yeah. Because he would do that. Because I remember him like in Brazil doing that like i don't want to be the main person in this i know want my places in this and he would be like that at the time i think maybe because the development of this has been such a long slog and everything i think there's a case of maybe leaving it too late because the thing is why i'm talking about this like the de-aging and stuff for pesci and pacino almost seamless you couldn't really tell i mean they those characters do have the benefit of not going so far in the de-aging as is required of De Niro. In a way, they do, though. It's just that it, it works better for them. Yeah. Looking at it, because I was, I was analysing it heavily, there's quite a lot that goes into it. And it's interesting when you watch the round table, because they're talking about this kind of stuff, and it's like, Pacino did it, Pesci did it, you didn't quite manage it, De Niro. So there's a lot of physicality things that go into it Yeah. that I feel like the other team managed very well. And the fact that Pacino is the eldest of the group and pesci moves like a like a panther yeah even the age late in his late 70s he was able to convey that youth even at that age for me pesci steals the film yeah hands down he is the best thing in the film easily but robert de niro and i think it's almost become a cliche he has in his later years he has such a stiff gait mm -hmm. if you saw him in silhouette yeah that's robert de niro that's old Robert De Niro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He has such a really kind of like very stiff, I can't move my body very much. Yeah, that's for sure. Combine that with his performance, which for me in the first two hours, it's not quite as assured as some of his past performances. And I'm not even talking about being like loud or over the top. It's just, you know, he's played many other roles where he's played very subdued roles and it's not. It's not quite there, but the, the big thing I think they should have done straight off is not make his eyes blue, because I think that's one of the big things. Yeah, I mean, that's on my list of things in terms of right at the top of that list of things that I would have changed is not making his eyes blue. I wrote down in my notes, it's actually a, there's actually a scene in it later on, yeah. the awards ceremony when he's talking to Russell. He doesn't have his contacts in. Uh, I think they forgot, and they didn't go back and change it, which is good. And it, it works so much better. Yeah, he's got a kind of like anime eyes look. Yeah, they're not they're not a natural colour. <laughs> yeah, glowy and, and really bright. He looks like he's been on some spice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really weird. Like It's not like it's severely off the boil. There's just a couple of little things that have piled on top of each other that have made that particular character not work for the time that he's being de-aged in whereas the other two seem to get away with it much better and it's and it's yeah. not just because their graphics are better or anything it, i think their performance is better and i'm not sure whether it's because he's so close to it that people are like less willing to ask him because it's his mm. project as such it's probably his project more than even scorsese's mm. I, like i said you can really split this into two bits because he really does claw it back in that last hour and a bit where it's like, ah, you've got it now. Yeah. It just didn't manage to achieve it in those flashback sequences for me. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go down the road of looking at that. I'm not going to make excuses for the film or that kind of thing. 
I, I think that there are elements of this film that require you to overlook certain things or look past certain things in order to appreciate it on a certain level and i can understand that there are roadblocks that if you can't get past them then you can't get past them that's no fault of you that's just something with the movie now one of them for me you mentioned like the first two hours of the film i would say more just the first hour of the film oh yeah yeah more more mostly yeah yeah that de niro's physicality is an issue i think his emotional performance is pretty fantastic and consistent but i think his physical performance is a detriment and that's not just in the obvious scene for example the the beating up of the shopkeeper which he couldn't look any more like an old man who just forgot to take his medication (laughs) they just wandered out of the retirement home than he does in that scene yeah to the point in which i understand why it's been made that way and i understand as well from scorsese's point of view He doesn't want to compromise his vision for the movie and his vision for violence as it's portrayed in this movie for the sake of a technicality. But they should have employed other means, maybe having a physical double, that kind of thing. That one's really weird because that's done in such a long shot that you could have achieved that. And I know there's a Frank double credited in the end credits as well. But it's very obvious that mm-hmm. it's that it's De Niro doing that. The thing is, with the CGI, is you can do a lot to take away things like the... Um, and, and what this film does well in terms of CGI is taking away the like floppy turkey neck that old men get. Yeah. And it gives people a jawline. You know, the, the CGI that's gone into recreating the suits and the neck and the ties and stuff like that, that all looks good. But overall, there's still like a waxiness and a weirdness to the faces, like an uncanny valley element to it that you do need to look past but there's nothing much that you can do really to mask especially well when it comes to De Niro is his physical performance and his gait and his his overall structure you know his um his body type he's got the body of an old man yeah yeah there's just simply no looking past that but in terms of an on an emotional level I kind of love this performance uh, I don't kind of I do I, I love this performance I also think that they give themselves a lot of leeway in regards to the performance as well by framing it against an old man telling a story, spilling the guts about his life because he's lonely Mm. and essentially stammering through the key elements of his entire life. Like the narration is for me so perfect, especially in this first, like the first hour of narration as well is perfect because he speaks through the narration like he does on his phone call with Jimmy Hoffa's wife, Joe. Yeah. Where when he's uncomfortable, he stammers. And he stammers through that first hour, well, first 45 minutes until Pacino's introduced to the film. And I get the feeling that they're presenting a character here who's uncomfortable with himself and yeah. being left to himself and being, he's a lonely man. And this part of the story is the, probably the part that interests him the least it's when al pacino comes into the story that suddenly he finds himself and also it's a weird choice of role for de niro because it's the less showy of the whole lot in terms of emotionally what he gets gets to provide because frank is a passenger in his own story he's like the the man who returned from war and He's just looking for the next person to follow. His next kind of like he's, he's somebody that's always followed orders, and we see that in the in, in his backstory. Yeah, yeah, he's got nowhere to go when left to himself, and that's why I think as well that this this first hour of the film 
is shakier and it stammers through it kind of fumbles through that first hour until it gets to a point and where the story gets going until Buffalino becomes a major player in the film Al Pacino as um, Jimmy Hoffa becomes a major player and then suddenly it all just you know all starts to click and the performance starts to bounce off each other I do get as as with yourself as what you say is with the uh, other two actors the you know you don't notice the de-aging with them but you notice it with De Niro you know, I I say I say that I say that there's less physicality with those actors, but there isn't. My worry with this film, when it comes to Pacino, was that he would have been too old to do a lot of his like desk thumping, shouting. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, but he he gets there. He gets there with no problem. <laughs> there's that scene where Pesci walks in and he's covered in blood and and stuff, and it's like apart from the the odd bit of waxiness in the face. There was nothing to me that suggested that that character wasn't the age that he was portraying at that time because he moved. When you're an actor, it's about all the elements. And if you're not getting all those elements, then your performance is, is lost in a way. That's why I kind of feel like De Niro, there's something about it where it's like, I, I don't feel like he's putting his all into this. Um, see, I disagree on that entirely. But I understand where you're coming from. I don't know. I just felt like I was watching Robert De Niro. I didn't feel like he was playing that character. I just like, this is Robert De Niro with some dodgy contact lenses. And and I've seen much better performances from him in other films. And I say it works when he's, in a way, in a more in his comfort zone when he's playing the old man, which is why the narration is the best part of the, um, the first hour, because he's, it, it's more within his remit as such. And yeah, I just... Because the thing is, with, with De Niro, he's so, so known for transformative performances that I just didn't feel like this was him at his best. I really didn't. I disagree, and I do think that it is somewhat of a transformative performance outside of the CGI, or when it's outside of the makeup. I agree that there's an issue with physicality, and obviously that is something that needs to be taken into account. I also think that there are ways that they probably could have gotten around it in a technical sense. But in regards to whether or not De Niro's giving this is all, I can't doubt that. And with Pesci, yes, we have moments like that. But the role of Frank Sheeran is such a different role, such a quieter role, such a more contemplative from the start. He is not the, as you mentioned before with Pesci, he's not the panther. He's a, he's a blunt object. He's a blunt tool. He's also one who's emotional reasoning and capabilities is i would say stunted and that is the character himself as well and obviously as that goes on that comes back to haunt him he's also a man who is lonely in his own world until he finds a new world to become a part of and that's when the de niro performance as well comes alive for me and in terms of the narration and what that adds to it i think from the beginning his story is always framed against the fact that it is one that's being told by an old man it is one that's being told from an elderly viewpoint and i don't think that scorsese or de niro or any of the actors have lost sight of that at any point essentially it's like listening to a story from grandpa simpson but yeah for me in terms of the actual like the commitment to the role from what i've read about frank sheeran i i think he's absolutely nailed it frank sheeran is not a showy role He's also not an, um, a crazy, intimidating character. He is one who, when he's flustered, he stammers. Where You know, that kind of thing. People have described him, as, as I mentioned, being emotionally distant. 
And I think that De Niro gets all of that right. And I think he's absolutely invested in portraying that as authentically as he can. But yeah, again, things hold it back. Mm. With the CGI as well, to, to just speak about that, <laughs> for instance, there is a famous scene, a scene that's become infamous in that opening of Russell Buffalino and Robert De Niro speaking in front of the van. And Joe Pesci comes out and says something like, have you got some trouble there, kid? Or something like that. And it's yeah, like yeah. watching these two 70-year-olds pretend that one of them's supposed to be in the 30s or 40s and the other one's supposed to be in his 20s. Mm. Yeah, there's a big jump there. And you either laugh or you kind of knuckle down and get on with it. <laughs> and again, there's even a bit where I think they first meet Pacino's character is supposed to be 39. And I think Sharon's supposed to be in his early 30s or late 20s. I know he's supposed to be 25 during a flashback to the war. I guess it's um, it's less of an issue for me now as well, because I've seen the film a few times. Mm. I no longer look at it and think about the age that the characters are supposed to be. For me, they just exist in this weird netherworld where, <laughs> where yeah, people hit 25 and look like waxwork dummies that were left in front of a radiator for too long. Yeah, But yeah, I think um, also like we've spoken about this in regards to another author one that we uh, we love so dearly, uh, Tom Hooper. <laughs> when he made Cats, he also employed a similar thing, which was the decision was made on the Irishman that they weren't going to use tracking dots. And uh, that decision was made for performance reasons. They didn't want the, the actors, you know, Pesci, Pacino, and De Niro walking through all the scenes with dots on their faces. They thought it would distract from the naturalistic way in which they normally shoot these movies and they mm -hmm. wanted to shoot this film in a way in which Scorsese always did they wanted to allow for improvisation and that type of thing and so the decision was made that they weren't going to use tracking dots so even in that way they kind of set themselves back a little bit and had to work a way around so every shot in this film is shot with three different cameras and an inf like one of them being an infrared like some weird infrared camera yeah, yeah. that matches the performance I, I feel like, as well, like we've had a load of um, videos come out after this film was released, like even just weeks afterwards, uh, from like deep fake YouTube channels that are like, "Hey, I fixed the Irishman," and <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like a younger-looking De Niro's face on top of that. But I also think you couldn't do that without the work that they've already put in. It's one of those things, like, oh, would it be? I mean, they, they would probably never do this now, but yeah, would they be able to like? do a slight remastering job on this at some point yeah with the fact that this has advanced quite considerably since they did it, it advanced considerably in such a short period of time yeah if you look at all you know the stuff that they've been doing with harrison ford in a similar way mm -hmm. for the new indiana Jones. i mean we haven't seen it yet so we don't know whether it's going to completely work but that's the hero the, shots that they've used in the trailer look good considering that your hero shots they are done for the trailer as well so they're not even going to yeah. be as good as they are in the film but outside of that, you're still not going to get away from that physicality aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, it would have worked fine if they'd employed a double for those first, the two bits that go back the furthest. Like that bit where he meets Russell in the truck and the uh, the World War II shot. If they'd used a double in those, I think it would have been much better. Yes, I I agree. Because I, I feel like, yeah, I feel for me now, I feel, like, oh, I feel bad now. I feel I've been overly negative. With for De Niro and his performance, but like I say, it's not that bad. It's just that, given how high De Niro's standards can be 
in other films that he's made with Scorsese. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I don't, you know, the fact that, you know, he ground his fucking teeth down for yeah. Cape Fear yeah. and shit <laughs> like that and put on God knows how many pounds for, you know, Raging Jake Lamont. Yeah, so yeah. I just feel like he's lost sight of a couple of things with, within the making of this film where he could have been, yeah, I get it. I'm not getting this. Let's use a double or I need to do some yoga or something like that to loosen up a bit. I think his commitment to the film has been too much because I think he He's, he's gone into this thinking, I will do everything. So that's the thing. I think he's just been a bit close to it, a bit too yeah. close to it, or he can't step back and go, right, what am I doing in this to make this as good as possible in this bit? I agree with that. I mean, especially in the scenes where he's at the butchers as well, because we do get to see him like a lot more in his full body sense kind of thing. And we can see that he's he's got an old man's body, as we say. But... I also feel like I get that Frank's supposed to be a character who has an older head on his shoulders anyway from a young age, but he's surrounded by these characters that are all in their like 40s, 50s and 60s. And he's supposed to be the kid of the bunch, but he just looks like another one of the guys. Yeah. And that's an issue for those early scenes because he's supposed to be kind of a bit cheekier, a bit like younger, a bit. Yeah. And that doesn't quite come across. And for me, it's all to do with the physicality. And I think it's maybe the first 20 minutes, they at least they just needed something else for the physicality side of it. Yeah. yeah. At, at the end of the day as well, he's still got a bit very, you know, he's not got the young De Niro head on it, on his shoulders. And that's another thing as well. We all know what De Niro looks like younger. Yeah, famously know what De Niro looks like younger. He's been a huge actor from a very young age. Yeah, They have made the choice that, well, this isn't going to be a young De Niro. This is going to be a young Frank Sheeran. Yeah. But there's a dissonance there because we as the audience are expecting one thing but getting something that we don't know, we've never met before. It's something I feel like they didn't learn from Casino as well because I know when they put contacts in Joe Pesci's eyes for when he played Nicky in that film... Yeah. didn't quite look right. That's the thing with eye colour. It's a very tricky thing. Your whole body matches your eye colour. And when you start changing that, it's very obvious. It becomes a bit of an uncanny valley thing. Yeah, Even just a little subtle change like that, because I feel like they've done something, they've done a couple of things with him. Even when he looks older, he doesn't look quite right. And when you transport that to the de-aging thing, I think that's where it doesn't work. And why it works for Pesci and Pacini because they didn't have to do that with those characters. They just left them as as is yeah, and then de-aged yeah. them from that point of view. And I feel like they just should have bitten the bullet and just done that with De Niro because I think it would have worked miles better. I think so. But at the end of the day, you know, they're the only negatives for me when it comes to this film. Yeah. Because everything else is just firing on all cylinders. Yeah, I mean, just to put my cards on the table, I mean, if it hasn't already come across that way anyway, is... um I have issues with this film on a technical level for sure. Just in terms of the de-aging, I could talk about like what works and what doesn't. I love that it's a, as Scorsese put it, it's a huge experiment and it was his way of testing waters that he had never waded into before. It was something that when he started making it, he didn't know if it would pay off or not. Yeah. yeah. Outside of that, it is a, a masterpiece and a fitting culmination of scorsese's career in terms of the mob and gangster stories that he's told over the years 
it goes further than the others. It feels like it's a film made by someone who has a lot more experience under their belt. And I mean that in terms of the emotional story that he decides to tell. It's a lot less showy and flashy than the likes of Casino and Goodfellas. Although those films, you know, have a lot of death and a lot of violence in them as well. This one feels like it's more specifically about death, obviously. Mm. I mean, even the way in which we introduce every single character, well, not every single, but most characters with a, a quick title card flashing up to show when they died, how they died. <laughs> that means, like, straight from the off, the way in which Frank's telling this story is... We know how all the same ...against when all of these people die. Yeah. yeah. So straight from the beginning, and it comes to a brilliant like payoff as well, that for me, which is when it comes up with the guy at Tony Pro's poker game, and he stands up and it freezes, and it says, um, loved by everyone, died of natural causes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which is just a great little payoff there. Yeah, But yeah, I, like framing this film straight from the off against, there is an ending for all of these people, and... Most of the time, it isn't pretty. Yeah. And when it, even when it's not pretty, it's sad and lonely. Yeah. But yeah, for me, this is something of like a masterpiece. But my question to ask on that point is, would you say that this film still works on that type of level if you don't have the context of Scorsese's previous filmography? Is gangster films up until this point? Is that like entirely necessary context you need for this no because i'd actually go and say the opposite it actually works better without it like i said the film played much better for me the second time when i knew what it was than it did the first time when i was comparing it against you know his earlier gangster films mm. it's part of that family but it's it's just yeah like i say it's a very different animal so yeah it actually benefits if you haven't seen anything like that but at the same time it's like it's made in such a way where it's like it's so unlike many films you would get now it's um the most fitting comparison i can think of probably wouldn't be a scorsese film it probably would be say a, a sergio leone film oh yeah I like, can see, like yeah. once upon a time in america it has that kind of pacing to it yeah it does i thought about once upon a time in america a few times whilst uh, watching it this particular watch through for some yeah reason. just because I, and i can compare it to it in that way as well because there's it it, it sells a similarish story where it it, it encompasses people's whole lives mm. i think mean, that one goes even much further back it also i think because it shares i think de niro does a similarish performance in that film than he does in the irishman where the that really subdued subdued yeah subtle performance yeah um and and that's that's also a film that that deals with the regret of old age mm. so i would say if you're if you're comparing it to anything that will be the film i would say is the model for what yeah. they're going for but it, it it still has quite a lot of that scorsese humor which you wouldn't yeah. get in in once upon a time in america so uh like you said with the title cards and this there's, there's there's just some really funny interactions and the great thing uh, for me is that how he's always able to manage the palpable dread and tension with humor yeah simultaneously that's always um because it's a funny film. Well. Yeah, it's very funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe not quite as obviously so in say than say something like Goodfellas. No, but there are still really humorous parts. I mean, yeah, I would say you know there's a lot of the stuff with Tony Pro and Sally Bugs 
that are like yeah. the sort of the standout humorous parts. <laughs> One of my favorite parts is that that whole fish in the back of the car because that 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 demonstrates that approach perfectly where you have that just sense of dread when you know that yeah. he's going to have to kill Hoffer and it's it's there's no music there's nothing going no. on it's just him on that plane going through the the stages and then all of a sudden you have this humorous scene where he's asking about where he got the fish from and why does he know what kind of fish it was and stuff and it's like yeah and it's like that is just spot on like genius level filmmaking i mean there's so much going on in that scene as well yeah. there's uh, it manages to have as you say this palpable sense of dread it manages to still be funny while doing that and it manages to be tragic as well yeah because uh, all the while we're again de niro hasn't really got much to say in that particular scene but anytime no. we cut to him he's still like it's weighing heavy on him the emotional sense of what he has to do, the emotional weight of what he has to do. The thing that I like about it as well is at no point from the moment that obviously everybody know, like everybody who knows anything knows the story of Jimmy Hoffa, but at no point do I feel like the question is, will he or won't he do this thing? He is a dutiful man, a loyal man, and I feel like by killing Hoffa, they framed it in a way in which it's very much like this is the best thing I can do for him, the most loyal thing it'd be me that does this and does it right you know it's almost like he's doing a friend's duty by shooting him in the back of the head i I love the whole like duality there's so many different things going on in that car i feel like that that scene just prior when he's talking with russell and russell asked to sort of explain to him that he's gotta he's going to detroit they're staying there yeah he said we we helped them all we could that's when de niro's performance goes from being like 80 miles an hour to 200 miles an hour yeah like yeah. it just switches there like he it just that's the thing like even though i'm I'm a little bit critical of, of his performance in the early parts of the film it balances out then because that switch there and then is just one of the best things i've ever seen yeah for all the faults that they're in the in the early part of the film really close it back in that moment and that from that point onwards to the end yeah it's just five star like i said We've talked about this before where it's like, even if it's a a film that has some flaws, but then it ends well, or if it's a great film and then it ends poorly, it can really have a a marked effect on your opinion of the film. And I feel this is a film that definitely ends very, very well. I agree. I think there is like a certain point at which this film is something I've seen before up until a certain point, and then it goes off into another world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it starts to get to that point just after JFK's death, and it starts to yeah, to yeah, move definitely. on into into that world. Like that's the, that's the cutting point for me, performance wise as well. Uh, one of the actors that we haven't really talked about is um, Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, and he's another actor that's had a um, as we mentioned, you know, Don Cacino. We've he's had a very strange career up and yeah. down, you might say, over yeah. the recent years. But this this for me is just a an incredible role for him. <laughs> yeah. And it's just bizarre that this is the very first, probably going to be the only film that he will ever be, be in that's a Martin Scorsese film. That's just weird. Yeah. The fact that it took this long to get them together is just very odd indeed. I mean, it's probably a matter of timing because I imagine the time that they may have got together theoretically would have been at some point in the 80s, but didn't he, didn't Pacino retire for about 
three or four years yeah in yeah. the mid 80s after the failure of was it was it revolution or something like that so i feel like that would have been the optimum time for the, them to collaborate it and it was obviously missed they do say um that there's there been no particular reason as to why they haven't worked together it's just a matter of yeah you know there are only so many projects and so much time in the world and people just pass each other like ships in the night mm. another actor that fell into that category there's a couple we have harvey keitel who is in this film as well yeah. excellent in this film in a short yeah. time he's in it and um he is one who for one reason or another scorsese and him just didn't find the right project and ray Liotta is another one they worked together once on goodfellas and scorsese always wanted to work with him again but it just never never happened ray Liotta is uh it's a sad one, that one. It's a very sad case, yeah, that one. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I remember even when, when this cast list was announced, it was just like, oh, wow, Dream Team. Yes, yeah. And it's not even just Dream Team of, like, old school. No. It's like you've got Dream Team of, of new generation as well, like your Stephen Grahams and your Jesse Plemons and, and people like that. Yeah, Jack Houston as uh, Robert Kennedy. Yeah. Even, like, Bobby Carnavale. Oh, yeah. It's just, I mean, the, the cast in this is just quite ridiculous i also love ray romano oh yeah again i wouldn't expect to have seen him when he was announced as being cast in this i was like ray romano in a scorsese film all right okay uh, <laughs> but I, I wasn't expecting it and he's, he's great <laughs> yeah i mean he's kind of the uh jonah hill of this film and i mean not in the same he's not as prominent but in terms of that wild yes. card casting he's sort of taking that part he is yeah but i think i think for me the the, the most like I said before, I think for me, Joe Pesci steals the film and it's not, it's not even just because, oh, we haven't seen him for such a long time. I just feel like it's such an atypical role for him. Yeah. Because De Niro has done, like I say, he, he's done stuff like Once Upon a Time in America. Was, yeah, yeah. I don't think Pesci had ever done anything quite like this before. Uh, and he sells it so well throughout the whole film where... It's so quiet and subdued, but you know, it, there's that flip side of fierce friendship and subtle menace yeah. going on throughout the whole time. I mean, Peggy, Frank Sheeran's son, uh, it's like Frank Sheeran's uh, daughter, who is a talked about role in the film. There's a scene between Joe Pesci as uh, Russell Buffalino talking to Peggy at the bowling alley. There's a sinister element to him as well. He wants to come across in Peggy's eyes as being a soft fatherly figure, an uncle figure to this to this character, but he can't do it. There's that quiet intensity there. And he even tells that little joke about why the sky's so high because the birdies will bump their heads, etc. And it's like, he couldn't be any more sinister, <laughs> you know, in that yeah. scene. And Peggy, the actress that they've got to play the young version of Peggy as well is excellent. Yeah. She barely says a thing. Peggy barely says a thing throughout. I mean, I think she's probably got about three lines of dialogue in the entire film. <laughs> yeah, and, and two of them are just one word. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Th that's something that's drawn criticism for the film, is Anna Paquin only having a couple of lines. And I'm, I feel like it misses the point entirely about what it's saying in regards to women in this world yeah and in regards to sharon's relationship with his daughter is that it's non-existent martin scorsese knew anna paquin from producing margaret yeah and he specifically cast her for her abilities at non-verbal communication so that part was always written like that 
And I don't really think it's a valid criticism in a way because, yeah, that is the role that she takes. Without that, the character doesn't work. Yeah. There's too much stock. And this is, I think this is why critics need to maybe get their heads out their asses sometimes because there's way too much stock in dialogue in films. Yeah, yeah, I got you. I mean, like I said, one of our favorite parts of the film for De Niro hardly says a thing for like a good like 20 minutes mm-hmm. scorsese films are known for their quick-witted dialogue but that's not all they're known for he's not tarantino he's no. much better than tarantino there's much more nuance than that i feel like this film has more of a kinship with the quiet contemplative nature of silence yeah than it does say with the wolf of wall street something he made a, a few yeah. years prior and that role in particular as well Yes, she may say little, but it's a commanding performance that creates a huge presence. That particular character for that last hour of the film is essential to the story that's being told. Yeah. Like, incredibly so. And it doesn't work without an actress of the caliber of Anna Paquin. No, no. And and that just goes to say, in terms of the stock of dialogue, sometimes you can say far more with an absence of dialogue. That's the whole point of the character. Like, you want her to say something. Yeah. And, like, just as Frank wants us to say something, but she never will. No. That's the whole point of the thing. And it's like, don't just say dialogue for dialogue's sake. This is not a, a story that you can manipulate like that either because you're dealing with a real time and place. So you've got to portray it truthfully. Yeah. There's things like that where it's like, You know, things like representation and equal balance works well in certain situations. But when you're doing something like this, it just isn't appropriate. No. It would ring false. It would actually draw attention to itself. And and again, it's just not the point of that character at the end of the day. Even if he did that, you'd still do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that particularly bothers me in that way. Because it's just like, that's, that's the point of that character. And she plays it really well. And again, acting isn't all about talking. And I think that's something that's been very misconstrued over the years. It certainly think, has. Yeah, like I said, just yeah. dialogue and everything. And again, you can blame people like Tech Quentin Tarantino because if you think about people thinking about this kind of auto cinema, sometimes people automatically go back to that and it's all about the quick-witted dialogue. And also, if you're comparing it to, say, other Scorsese films, like there is an element of narration in this film, but it's nowhere near as prominent as it is in the other gangster films that he made, especially Goodfellas and Casino. Like Casino's like the zenith of that. I think there's narration all the way throughout. I don't think there's there's hardly any scenes without any kind of narration. I mean, they even play with it. Like I love that bit in Casino where Nicky's narrating his own death and then gets as soon as he gets knocked over the head, it's like oh, it's his fantastic. narration ends. And it's just brilliant because yeah. it kind of wrong foots the audience. And that's why I think, like, for me, like, Scorsese is a much better filmmaker all round, and even with the dialogue and stuff than, say, Tarantino is, because he, he's more um, playful and inventive yeah. with it than Tarantino is. Although, you know, Tarantino has his strengths, but I feel like Scorsese has way more strings to his bow. That's what I would say as well. I feel like Scorsese is far more accomplished and comfortable with other types of films. Yeah. I think it has less to do with Tarantino specifically. Uh, I do think it's like about him, but I also think it's to do with um, the way in which auteur cinema is also taught in film school now. Yeah. In that it's 
he's the go-to example yeah. constantly. Yeah, I was trying to say that. <laughs> it's less about what Tarantino's doing and more about the kind of world around him and the importance that they've put in, into his work in that oftentimes it feels like a lot for a lot of people, he's the only example that they jump to. Yeah. I will say, I mean, this brings me to another point. Everybody who, I mean, most people who listen to this podcast will know that like Ridley Scott is probably my favorite filmmaker but i would say that martin scorsese is probably the greatest living filmmaker yeah he has a range that is unbelievable when it's put against the range of other filmmakers and i mean that in terms of not just the story that he tells and the stories that he chooses to tell and what he's musing about but also the way in which he tells them and for a prime example really we look at wolf of wall street and we look at the irishman and I'm talking in a way, um, like, you know, discard everything to do with the CGI and everything like that. Those films feel like they are great films made by different filmmakers. Yeah. Like The Wolf of Wall Street feels like it's a early film in someone's career with all of the energy in the world. You know, it feels like a young man's film. Yeah. And then you look at The Irishman and it embodies everything about Frank Sheeran, the character, the old man, the lonely old man who fumbles through his life. It plods at times. It suddenly comes to life for others as he suddenly finds interest in certain things. I mean, even the narration at some point is like, uh, I can't be interested in telling that part of the story now, blah, 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 let's move on. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's got that kind of element of listening to an old man talk and it feels like an old man's film. And I feel like he has a range that is unprecedented, really. <laughs> and um, as as far as like living filmmakers go, I do feel like he is probably the best one out there yeah because there's other great filmmakers but just in terms of like the body of work like the shit yes. amount yeah. of films he's made as well like and there's only a couple of say slightly lesser films in there as well like you know i did watch the color of money yes yeah a few months ago and i'd say that's definitely one of his lesser films because you can kind of tell that he's doing it he's making it for the studio and his heart yeah not that's 100%. a studio film isn't it it feels like it. you know and there's nothing wrong with it but you can just tell that it's lacking that personal conviction it's very mm-hmm. technically competent and done well but it doesn't have as much personality say something like you know i think i watched um king of comedy and then that straight afterwards and it yeah, <laughs> it yeah. did a real disservice because king of comedy is so uh so much a, a martin scorsese film and then when you compare mm-hmm. it to the color of money it's like ah he's doing a really good job but it's just lacking that that personal touch i think for me re- recently looking at like people people's comments on the internet and stuff you know, especially in regards to his like Marvel, Marvel comments yeah. and stuff, and it's like the mobster guy. It's a shame that it's boiled down to this with this whole stupid black and white thinking, yeah, and kind of missing the point of what he's even talking about anyway. Because he's even talking about them being theme park rides, and it's like you know, theme park rides are made by even I think he even mentions this. You know, theme park rides are made with a lot of skill and attention to detail and there's yeah, nothing love, wrong yeah. with a theme park ride but it's a theme park ride the thing is as well like he always mentions that this is his personal opinion yeah. it, like in that interview I watched he's like to me they are theme park rides not movies to other people they are movies and that's fine yeah yeah he always makes a point of making sure that it comes across as a personal opinion but it's always repackaged by the press and by the gossip columns again the, 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 they always come back down to sound bites don't they so yeah exactly people yeah. just make judgment based on that which then it's kind of a, a sad state of affairs that we're in at the moment with that kind of stuff so yeah and it's a shame that yeah a lot of his legacy 
for a lot of younger people is boiled down to that. Mm. <laughs> it's very sad. Now, one thing I do want to mention about The Irishman, and specifically about the relationship between Frank and Jimmy. I picked up on this when I first watched the film, and maybe it's something that I'm just bringing to it. But I feel like there's a lot of homosexual tension there. Mm. <laughs> Especially in regards to, like, I first clocked onto it when they started to share the hotel room's beds. Mm. There's no, like, lust or anything there, you know, there's no sexual tension. But there is this kind of sense that Jimmy is Frank's soulmate going on throughout this entire film. Yeah. He's the only person that he feels most comfortable with and it does become something of a love triangle as it as it goes later into the film as we have kind of in a sense a battle for frank's soul yeah in terms of who he aligns himself with whether it be buffalino or hoffa now i'm not saying in any way shape or form that these characters were gay um specifically um sheeran and hoffa that's not true i feel like the film does go into a realm that there is this kind of like uh, tragic love story of sorts going on yeah because it, it works on so many different levels as well because that's what helps to build that sense of dread in that last hour or so because yeah putting that faith in someone but then it's also there's that there's that other thing like we mentioned before with peggy there's that little there's that battle for yeah peggy because peggy sees hoffer as a it's more of a valid father figure than Frank is. The most we see, the happiest we see her is around Jimmy. And she's talking about Jimmy Hoffer at school. Yeah. Like you would expect a kid to talk about their daddy. Yeah, and it's because of that betrayal that it destroys that relationship as well. So there's, it's working on more than one level in that regard. Mm. And yeah, it only helps to increase that sense of dread towards the end. Because you get that sense during the uh, awards ceremony as well that, that it's starting to build up then. Yeah, that's when it all turns into a he said, she said high school drama for a yeah. moment as well. Yeah. I like this whole um, runaround that Frank has to do between the different bosses and Jimmy in terms of like, uh, maybe you can say this to him, maybe you can say that to him, and he has to relay back and forth. And it turns into, like I say, it turns into Mean Girls for a moment. Well, uh, and, and, that, <laughs> and that's that's the beauty of that scene, because it just boils down the whole mafia mentality. It boils down the kind of playgroundness of it all. It's yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's so it's, silly, in a way. It is. It, it's like they refer to prison as school as well during yeah. these scenes and stuff. And it's like, these are people that never left the school ground and are still continuing their petty squabbles. Only now people die. Yeah, it just perfectly demonstrates that. And I think that's the other reason why it's so different to the other gangster films, that it doesn't glamorize at all this life. It kind of shows how stupid and petty it all is. Like there's that there's that wonderful bit where they kill Sally Bugs because they saw him going to the FBI building and it just ended up being a, a bad hit. Yeah. And it's just like that's how stupid it all, all is. Yeah, you could speak to him, but no, it's better to just kill him and make a point. And that's what the whole last like half hour of the film's about. It's like you've done all this, what's left? What was it yeah. for in the end? It was for nothing. You all died in prison or when you got out there was nothing left for you. And that's where this film kind of goes to another level entirely. Yeah, in terms of those like final shots, that opening shot as well um, of the Steadicam through the old folks on, which is excellent, especially at the time and so that De Niro comes in at just a bright moment with regards to continuing the narration in person. And we have the um, song, I think it's Still of the Night or something like that. Yeah. In the still of the night. And it's all about like my darling... Um, I love you so, and it's waiting for someone. 
And you could argue that that is in reference to him waiting for Peggy, but I think with that final shot of him asking for the priest to leave the door open, just as Hoffa did, yeah, that for me is what solidifies that whole aspect of there being a soulmate element to his relationship with with Hoffa, is that that song might be in reference to him. That his greatest regret in life kind of thing. Yeah. They were meant to grow old together as best friends, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> when he kills Hoffer, it's the moment that he, he loses his own soul. Yeah, and it's like, is it is he leaving the door open for that? And then there's, there's another level, is he leaving the door open so his soul can take him? Yeah. Is he waiting just to die? But is he also waiting just to die so he can say sorry to, to Jimmy? Yeah. There's so much in that. Yeah. There's that last... I think it was almost like almost second to last scene where there's another long nursing home shot that I was wondering whether you knew anything about this, where it goes from day, day to, to night. night. And is it done in one shot? Right. I was watching this particularly this time. If it's not done in one shot, I don't know where the seam is. No. Because for me, is it like, is it just a really well planned out case of blocking and lighting and stuff like that, where it's just like switch around with the lights, everyone move, you know, it's incredibly well, well rehearsed sort of thing. I genuinely think it is because I can't see the seam. However, that's something about Martin Scorsese's filmmaking is that all of this stuff just feels effortless. Yeah. I also appreciate that this is a period film, a period piece that takes place over several different decades, but it never feels flashy or showy. It's never a 50s film. It's never a 60s film. Yes, the, the soundtrack is... It dates it kind of thing. It gives it it gives it gives a specific feel. But there's, there are never any, like, sweeping vistas or big location shots, you know? It feels like it's just very much rooted into Frank's world. And Frank was never interested in the pop culture of the time. Yeah, yeah. That's probably cost them a lot of money as well in terms of, like, how how well all of the scenes are dressed. For example, there's a shot of just inside a motel room for one shot, and they've had to kit out the whole motel room to look like something from the 1970s, you know? Yeah. And it looks perfect. Yeah. But it never draws attention to itself. Yeah. The period is never about, like, look at me, we're the 60s, you know, that kind of thing. No. We've got the no. Jersey Boys on the corner, you know? <laughs> I mean, I think the closest it gets to it is that long shot, going to that hotel in Miami. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the same hotel they use in Goldfinger, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which I think is in reference to, I think it was a Johnny Carson or something like that. They, yeah. They used to use it, like, that kind of shot for, for something. But it's so well done that it feels like it's really part of... Like, when you, you have the whole JFK sequence... Yes, yeah. It blurs the lines between real life and the film mm -hmm. to the point where yeah you actually have an actor playing robert kennedy but then you still use stock footage of john f kennedy but it yeah. works in the same way and there's almost like i think i even wrote now it's like ah the nice little reference there where they have joe pesci mentioning dave ferry uh, and yeah. they have another actor play Dave Ferry, and I was like, ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, everything's so, like, again, it's like effortless. It doesn't scream out at you. And I was like, there's even that joke in the round table that they made when they were making Raging Bull about how they had to stop everything because someone was wearing a non period watch in the crowd. Yeah, yeah. And like, that's the level of detail that he's willing to go to. And just that, again, and everything about this film is so much, like I said, it, it comes from experience and subtlety. And in a way, it's a shame that it's good in one way that they went with the experiment because that's the kind of stuff that I like to see, yeah. especially from seasoned filmmakers. But it almost slightly upsets everything else that's going on 
with yeah. the attention to detail and time and place and stuff like that because it is so well done yeah everything else is so subtle as well because the slight changes in the cinematography to match the decades as well like mm -hmm. i know there's like i think the 50s has a kodachrome look and yeah. then the 70s stuff has a silvery like it's designed yeah. to slightly match the cinematography of the time it's like a more subtle look of the approach that they had to the aviator yeah completely but, but, but subtler than color, that i yeah, would say yeah, far far more nuanced. so it's like he's even he's even matured and got more refined with that kind of thing yeah but it's double-edged sword with that de-aging because it's it's great that they went with that experiment, but it kind of slightly takes away from all of this masterful stuff that's yeah, going yeah, on. I get and that, I think yeah. it makes general audiences not appreciate what's going on. Yeah, because they're too busy looking at the elephant in the room. Because it is, it is so distracting for that first hour, and it kind of yes, you, you can't appreciate a lot of the other things that are going on, and it's a real shame that it is like that. I kind of wish they would do some sort of like remaster job on it to try and slightly improve it now yeah. but I, it's probably not going to happen but i can understand the want for that for, like, yeah. for that first hour i can understand the want for that and because it is so effortless i think yeah it's very easy to take for granted yeah because you just don't get this kind of level with many other filmmakers i mean who else is willing to travel past the violence the money shots to look at some flowers in a window while people are executed off shot yeah that's the kind of filmmaking that shows real confidence and again he just supplies his tools to the story that's being told, like we were talking about with Wolf of Wall Street being a young man's film. And it was made to be like that. That That's yeah. used exactly what was needed for that story. Telling it from an old man's perspective wasn't appropriate for that film, just as telling this story from a young man's perspective wouldn't be appropriate either. So yeah. that's the kind of level that you're dealing with and why we're saying he, he can't really be touched by that many people in for those kind of qualities mm. he's done a couple of films that have had similarities to them like mm -hmm. say you can definitely say that casino is a spiritual sequel to goodfellas kundan isn't <laughs> the silence and... he is the goat the greatest of all time <laughs> in my, at least one of them in my opinion well, um, I, I definitely in, in in western cinema definitely yes yeah i would i would agree and it's i think it's a shame that this got well we'll probably go into this now it kind of just didn't didn't quite set the world alight in the way that I was expecting it to. My last thing to mention, really, is I've already said it before, but the whole fairy called fairy and the minor divergence from the plot and where we we see the the government official with this with his big ears that aren't big anymore because he's had a had surgery. That is the most Grandpa Simpson part of the story that I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, I could imagine Grandpa Simpson telling that story. And going nowhere kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and we wore an onion on our belts, which was part of the style of the day. Um, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. I love how Grandpa Simpson, this whole, like, this film can feel at times. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely really embodies that old man in an old folks home, tell, tell, you know, spinning you a yarn. And in a way as well, it's, it's kind of like, it helps you buy into the idea that this might not be how it went down. But this is how up Frank sees how it went down, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he might be an unreliable narrator just trying to spin yarn so you don't go away. Yeah. But yes, moving over to the stats and facts. So let's... Um, the main thing that we will be talking about here is the critical reception, but we do have a little bit of information on the way in which audiences perceive this film. So in regards to the tomato meter reading, it has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. And the critics' consensus is that it's an epic gangster drama that earns its extended runtime 
The Irishman finds Martin Scorsese revisiting familiar themes to poignant, funny, and profound effect. The critics themselves give it a 8.8 out of 10 average rating. Now, the review that I have to go off is from Ian Freer of Empire Magazine. They did give the film 5 out of 5, and he said that the film is best when it sticks to the dynamics between the characters and it picks up superbly as the various conflicts come together. But what lifts the Irishman head and shoulders above every other recent crime film is that it doesn't end when the bodies are buried and the gangsters are locked up. Instead, it becomes a powerful, painful study of regret, but not remorse. You don't know how fast time goes by till you get there, says Frank towards the end of the film, as the film becomes about counting the cost of a life of crime. Uh, Sheeran is emotionally unintelligent. A call to a widow trying to express his sympathy is excruciating for him and us, but there is little time in all the painting houses to consider and reflect. Um, it's a good review. I, I, mm -hmm. I would definitely recommend reading it. That does make me ask the question, one other question I did want to mention to you. Which is the better title? The Irishman or I Heard You Paint Houses? The latter. Yeah, it just is, isn't it? It feels like in the film they can't decide which one's the better title because they use it both. I think they kind of prefer the original title, to be honest, because they use that twice, whereas they use The Irishman once. The Irishman is a Netflix title. Yeah. I Heard You Paint Houses is Scorsese's title. Right, that's okay. The, that's his one. That makes sense. Netflix thought The Irishman would be an easier sell as a title. Probably right. Yeah. Yeah. You can see that Scorsese said, well, you know what? You can put whatever name on the poster that you want and we'll do the contractual obligation and the titles at the end. But at the beginning, this is going to be explicitly titled. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you paint houses. Yeah. yeah, so now we're just moving over to what audiences think of this film. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 86%. But here's the thing. It only has 1,000 verified ratings. When it comes to audiences. I mean, we see films sometimes with like 250,000, 300, maybe more. Yeah. This is 1,000 plus verified ratings for 86%. And they give the film a 4.3 out of 5 average rating, which is really high for what we've seen on here before. Yeah. And on IMDb, it has a 7.8 out of 10. But just to frame that against the films that people do frame this against, even though I don't feel it is quite a part as much a part of that as uh, as they think it is. Uh, Goodfellas is an 8.7 and Casino is an 8.2. But I, I do think it's a different beast entirely than those films. Now, here's where we get into some murky water. So how do we approach the way in which this film was received in terms of money, in terms of the box office, in terms of people watching it? So the thing that they have on Wikipedia is that the Irishman was watched by 17.1 million people in its first five days of digital release in the United States, including 3.9 million on its debut day. While the overall total was lower than previous Netflix originals, such as Bird Box, users watched the film in its entirety on its premiere day, which was on par with Bird Box and higher than El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. I don't get what any of that fucking means. <laughs> It's just nonsense to me. Yeah. They seem to fluctuate between rating it in terms of people who had watched it to how many minutes have been watched, etc., etc. And for example, for a film like The Irishman, which is like three and a half hours long, its minutes watched should be higher than something that's like a 90 minute film. 
Yeah. So what do you go by? The amount of people reached? The minutes watched? I don't get it. But it seems to go by both, and uh, depending on film to film. Mm. And in regards to box office, it did receive a minor release, but it kind of uh, flopped even for the standards of a limited theatrical release, and it had a $8 million box office, uh, and domestically is what it came to. Yeah, which is not going to offset the $250 million that they spent on it. What was the theatre like when you went to see it? Was it full or was it mid? Well, I went to one of those very small, like, special theatres, you know, the Everyman Cinema in Manchester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was only about, like, 30 seats in there, and they were all full. Right. Okay. It was a full screening, but it was a very limited screening. Yeah. It wasn't playing in the likes of The View or The Odeon. But yeah, so that's where we are on The Irishman. I mean, I would say there's one more name that we haven't given a shout-out and it's deserved with practically every Scorsese film, and that is um, Thelma Schoonmaker. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> has to just be said, best editor in the business. Yeah. Uh, does an amazing job here. And that is her coming off as well, her previous masterpiece, which was The Snowman. Um, <laughs> no, honestly, when you look at her filmography and you see the snowman in there, it's such an oddity. I may, I've been to be honest, it'll be. Uh, I imagine the film would be much worse in anyone else's hands. Can you imagine what that film would have been if she hadn't have been involved in it? It's yeah, a- it was like you, it's your film. There's about twenty percent missing. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been a grand experiment in and of itself. But yeah, I, I have to give a shout out to her. She is an amazing editor, the best in the business. Yeah. But Andy, so would you recommend The Irishman? Yeah, I mean, of course I would. Um, <laughs> I think the main thing will be just to say, you know, the first hour is a little bit rocky. Yeah. But give it time. I think for me, it's going to be one of those films that improves with every rewatch. Yeah. Although, because it's so long, it may take a while for need to get around to doing that rewatch because uh i agree yeah <laughs> it's it's a strange thing as well because people go oh what it's a long film and it's like yeah but you, you've probably binged about four episodes or something yeah exactly yeah day. but i think it's that compartmentalization that people can't get around and with, with all all these kinds of films it's quite it's quite heavy it's quite relentless yeah it's one of those films even though time wise in a real sense of time i had to watch it in two sittings it didn't feel like a long film to mm-hmm. me it's not poor in a writing sense. It's just on a technical level where it falls down in that first bit. That's where the experiment doesn't doesn't work. Yeah. Famously, yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, Martin Scorsese said was, <laughs> while this film was being made, he wanted to retain the performance of the in the eyes, and it was like it was clear that he was having such a hard time with that first hour of the film because he constantly talks about trying to find a middle ground between it being like all cgi and all performance and he just struggled with that in that that first hour specifically as well like you say the physicality of De Niro. but yeah we spoke about that but yeah, yeah. that's um i wouldn't even say it's a matter of if you can get past that hour it's more so if you can look past those technical faults in regards to the special effects yeah and see the story beneath and that gets easier with every re- rewatch it's it yeah. much easier and easier and for fans of the last season of the sopranos of which there are dozens of us out there now there are many of us now you know what you're getting with that kind of comparison that's what you're getting with this film it's a a long meditation on death and dying and loneliness so it's a it's one for the kids and i think that's why yeah it's it's it is a tough sell for a lot of modern 
audiences because yeah you've got that technical hurdle but then you've got the subject matter tied in hand with that and i think it's great that it got made but i think its placement on streaming services almost did it a disservice because yeah it doesn't have that kind of grandness that you want from it unless you you know like you say you saw it on a big screen Mm. but then also people are just less willing to give things like that a chance or even a rewatch because it did improve significantly on a rewatch yeah so yeah yeah it's a great experiment and it's on the whole an amazing film but it's it's got its little hurdles to overcome and unfortunately i I think its legacy is going to be hampered by that yeah it's a real shame but it's it's i'm really glad it's there and it's yeah um it's just a miracle it got made it is (laughs) (laughs) okay and that's all we have time for on the latest episode of the show now i'll hand it over to you andy you're going to introduce what our next episode will be yeah so um, <laughs> ew. um yeah i'm do- we're doing la bamba um <laughs> no we are going to be discussing that cinematic masterpiece after speaking about thelma shoemaker and her amazing editing work we're <laughs> yeah we're uh, we're doing uh, walk hard the dewey cox story uh, sorry i mean <laughs> bohemian rhapsody so uh, yes, we are doing Bohemian Rhapsody, maybe with a little bit of Rocket Man in there as well. Um, oh, that's a good shout. <laughs> that is a great shout. We've got to lift the lid on the modern biopic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, until then, I've been Gareth Green. And I've been Al Pacino. Thanks for listening. Don Pacino. 